Thank you, Greta and Kendra and children for that ministry in music. Tonight, we begin a series on the book of First Thessalonians. We're just going to do an overview this evening. As an introduction, we note that Thessalonians is a wonderful book filled with comfort and instruction. It's written to encourage a church that's going through very hard and difficult times. The message is pleasant to consider, not that the hard and difficult times are pleasant, but the fact that God is going to comfort and encourage them. Today we begin with a background in the book and the occasion for its being written. So to whom is the book being written and why? We start with a background to the city. Thessalonica was the first century a large and flourishing city. It had a population of over 100,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia and its most prominent and important city. And by the way, I know that should be I-T-S apostrophe, not I-T apostrophe S. As the capital of the province, it enjoyed a numerous civic and commercial privileges, including the right to mint its own coin. In 42 BC, it became a free city governed by its own rulers. So a background to the establishment of the church. As we consider the church of Thessalonica, we would do well to consider its founding as recorded in Acts chapter 17. So we begin with the religious background of the Thessalonians. There was a large Jewish population that was present in Thessalonica. In verse 1 of chapter 17 of Acts, it says that there was a synagogue of the Jews that was present there. It was to this Jewish people that Paul began to minister when he got to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, uh, and <coughs> on three Sabbath day. Now, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it was Paul's modus operandi of when he went to a city, he would always start with the Jewish population and then spread from the Jewish population to the Gentiles. Paul's ministered in the synagogue for it was a rather brief period of time for three Sabbath days. The reason it was so short was because the persecution began rather quickly that he was experiencing as a result of the Jews. Paul experienced uh, expound the scriptures to them. Tells us in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul gave proof from the word of God that Christ's death and resurrection were in keeping with that which was prophesied in the Old Testament. For it says in verse 3, explaining and praying that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Paul's ministry focused on the message that Jesus was the promised Messiah whom I proclaim unto you, who is the Christ. Christ, of course, is uh, the word for Messiah. So Paul was using these Old Testament scriptures uh, to teach the Jewish people about their Messiah, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The result was quite impressive. 
A number of Jews believed, in verse 4, it says some of them were persuaded. A large number of the Gentiles, who were followers of Judaism, believed. Uh, and it says, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Now this word for devout is actually the word for God-fear. That's how it's translated in the NAS. And the God-fears were a technical term. They were proselytes. They were um, Gentiles who would have adopted the Jewish faith. And uh, so though they were not Jews ethnically, they were Jews religiously. And a great many of those, it says, believed. And a number of the prominent women in Thessalonica believed also. It says in verse 4, not a few of the leading women. So when you, when you think of this over a very brief period of time, as I say, it, it's quite impressive. The Spirit of God was at work. As a result of so many coming to faith, a severe persecution begins. The persecution was not motivated out of a concern for truth, but rather by envy on the part of the Jewish leaders. For it tells us in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Uh, they were jealous of the way in which Paul was being received, the way in which his teaching was uh, hitting the mark. Uh, they were envious of the followers that were getting behind him, and so they were opposed to Paul, not because of what he was teaching, but because of the effect that it was having. And so there is a contrast drawn with respect to the people of the synagogue in Berea and, the and those in Thessalonica. Then Paul and Silas were sent to Berea. Verse 10. The, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Next, the Bereans were contrasted to the Thessalonians. The Bereans were more respectable than the Thessalonians, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. To be noble is to be worthy of emulation. These were people that should be looked upon favorably, held up, people to be respected. And what was so noble about them was that the Bereans were eager to learn and study the word. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So they were wanting to hear what the Apostle Paul said. But then beyond that, the Bereans allowed the scriptures to govern their thoughts. They allowed their preconceived ideas to be challenged and simply did not dismiss out of hand what they had heard. For it tells us in verse 11, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. But I want you to point out that they weren't skeptical. So many times I hear this verse and it's put on its, its head, and that is people say well, you should always be skeptical of what you hear and go home and make sure that what you hear is true. That's exactly the opposite of what happened. They assumed that what they heard was true. They were eager to receive it, but they weren't going to be duped. They went home then and examined to make sure that what they heard 
was true. But they started out with this giving Paul the benefit of the doubt. They were hearing the word of God expounded. It seemed to make sense. And so they were embracing it. And then they went home to look at it more thoroughly, more clearly to make sure, indeed, that's what the word of God has to say. And I'd submit to you that's really the way we should all sit under the teaching of the word of God. We should have respect to believe that what we hear is true, but then we need to understand for ourselves that indeed what is being said is, in fact, true. The persecution brought together some strange bedfellows. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men to the rabble. <laughs> so here are these Jewish leaders but uh, they want to persecute Paul. They don't have any good reason to persecute him. So they get wicked people who are willing to do what they're told for a price, and they're going to stir them up to begin this persecution. So we find time and time again in the Word of God that the Pharisees are not above using people of ill repute in order to achieve an end that in their mind justifies the means. Uh, of course, they found uh, people that would lie about Jesus and what he had said, and they paid them to do so. They paid Judas in order to betray Christ. So you can see the temperament and the corruptness of these Jewish leaders. They created a climate where it was impossible to reason from the scriptures any longer. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob in the city in an uproar. So the ability to go into the temple, uh, excuse me, into the synagogue and continued to, to speak and preach came to an end. The participation was first directed, excuse me, the persecution was first directed at Paul and Silas, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city on an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. To them is Paul and Silas. The persecution then flowed over to the new converts in Thessalonica. And when they could not find them, because Paul and Silas had already left, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And so he is being persecuted for having welcomed Paul and Silas into his home. Jason and the others enter into some kind of deal. Verse Nine, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, what this security is, it's hard to say. Uh, it seems like it's kind of like a bail, but it's probably more than that. In addition, the believers ushered Paul and Silas out of the city in order to protect them. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they gathered, they went into the Jewish synagogue application. 
One can readily see how the situation would breed uncertainty in the mind of Paul concerning what would become of the converts. That's why we're looking at this. You see, Paul would have reason to question what is now going on in Thessalonica when he was there for such a brief period of time. How would this security that Jason and others had given affect this part of the gospel? What kind of deal did they make? What, what kind of concessions were made in order for them to be set free? Did they say we won't follow the Lord anymore? Did they say we won't house any of these people? What did they say? We don't know. But uh, Paul is concerned. How would Paul's fleeing the city be perceived by the remaining Thessalonian believers? Here is this person, he comes in, boldly proclaiming the gospel as soon as persecution arises. He hightails it out of there. So what does that say? What kind of example does that set? He's concerned about what their reaction is going to be, not only for the gospel's sake, but what their view of him will be. What do they think about Paul and his leaving in the middle of the night? How would Paul's actions be perceived relevant to the Thessalonians' own persecution? They're staying, they're remaining, they're being persecuted, but Paul's off the scene. And how would Paul minister to these many believers who were left behind? These people that had put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But who's going to teach them now? Who, who's going to lead them? Who's going to pastor them? Who's going to care for them? Who's going to nourish them? So you can see there would be a lot of thoughts that are going through uh, Paul's mind. And the book of Thessalonians is a letter that he sends to the Thessalonians in order to put his mind at ease, and try to find the answers to some of these questions. So the occasion of the writing of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to explain the reasons that he has not yet returned to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, it says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul wants them to understand that there is no ill will on his part. He has nothing against them. It's not that he doesn't care about them or isn't concerned, but rather that he is being hindered from coming. So I make this application. It's good to see to be aware of how our words or actions could be misunderstood or misread. Paul often had to deal with the misconceptions as to why he had not yet visited or returned to visit a particular church. For example, in Romans chapter 1, 9 through 11, Paul had at that point never been to Rome when he wrote the letter of Romans. And so it says in verse 9, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul wants him to know he wants to come, 
He's praying to come, but to this point, it's been beyond his control. And it goes on to say in Romans, oftentimes he purposed to come. You almost get the intent that he purchased his ticket and was intending to get on a ship and something happens and he can't come. And we find out later in the book of Romans that ultimately it's that Paul has to go to places that have not yet heard the gospel. The Romans have heard the gospel. They are grounded in the gospel, probably through the work of the apostle Peter. And so Paul has other priorities. But it's easy to see how people can jump to conclusions and unfortunately ascribe uh, negative connotations to people's actions. And so Paul was constantly having to defend what choices he made and why he was not able to be present with those that were asking for him. B, Paul had been deeply concerned about how the Thessalonians were bearing up under the persecution that they were suffering. Verse 5 of chapter 3, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. So he was really, really concerned. And he says that he got to the place where he couldn't bear it any longer. He had to learn about their faith. He had to learn about how they were doing. What had all this persecution done? Was there a church at Thessalonica or not? Were there believers there or had they all abandoned the faith? Therefore, Paul dispatched Timothy to visit the Thessalonians, see how they were doing, and to encourage them in their faith. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. And sending them Timothy, Paul was in fact providing the Thessalonians the help that they needed, which he himself could not provide. Verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker of the gospel of Christ. So Paul couldn't come himself, so he sends Timothy as a representative, one that was capable one that was to be received and to be welcomed. So part of the reason that 1 Thessalonians is written is to introduce them to Timothy and tell him them of his role. Next, Paul writes to provide the Thessalonians with further instruction that is needed before he comes. It would appear that the Thessalonians were beginning to question their salvation and God's love for them in light of the persecution they were undergoing. They were wondering if indeed they were saved, if they were going through all this persecution. First Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 
So Paul says, you shouldn't be surprised. I told you that persecution is going to come. We are going to see as we work our way through Thessalonians that it is a, a book that is so countercultural to the thinking of the church today. Paul is going to say in chapter 2 that he was with them and he didn't use flattering speech. He, he didn't uh, try to entice them in believing the gospel. He, he says in chapter 1, we're going to look at it in much more detail, but I'll just allude to it, that he knows that they are elect because they had believed under such adverse circumstances. Everything in modern Christendom tries to make the gospel more palatable, more winsome, to, to try to appeal to, to individuals in ways that are going to be soft and, and comforting. You know, God is your friend. You need a friend. Come to Christ. He can be your friend. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and you've heard these appeals to try and encourage people to make what is the, the easiest decision in the world. For what could be better than believing in Christ? Now, certainly it's true that it's wonderful to believe in Christ, but those that believe are going to suffer persecution. Jesus said, I've come to turn father and mother <coughs> against the children. It creates issues sometimes in families when some people come to faith and others don't. There are hardships that are associated. There are things that need to be repented of when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And there's a tendency to blindside people, and then when these things happen, they're really taken aghast because they don't think that that's what the Christian life is all about. But Paul says, I told you up front, that you were going to suffer these things. Number two, even further, they feared that the death that they were undergoing was a sign of God's disapproval of their newfound faith. Why would God allow believers to die at the hands of their persecutors? You can understand how a baby Christian would certainly wonder such things. So Paul begins the letter by assuring them of two things. First, that God loves them. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Beyond a shadow of doubt, he says, I know that God loves you. And he's not just saying that in a generic sense that people often refer to God and how he loves everyone. He says, God has loved you because he has chosen you, because you are the elect. You have a very special place in God's heart and plan. He has chosen you. How does Paul know that? Well, we will answer that question in uh, another evening. As a part of God's elect, they will experience God's love and be spared from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Paul is going to make a great distinction between the persecution that they are experiencing and the wrath that is going to come upon the non-believers. He wants them to understand that the hardships and the difficulties that they are encountering are not God's wrath poured out against them. God is not angry with them. They have been spared from God's wrath. That becomes a crucial element of the book of 1 Thessalonians. The wrath spoken here is of God's eternal judgment. Verse 16 of chapter 2, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So he's talking about salvation, and he's talking about eternal judgment. It is the persecutors who will be experiencing God's wrath, verse 16. But wrath has come upon them at last. Paul writes to the Thessalonians to comfort them concerning those who apparently died in the persecution. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died. Would these dead saints miss out on the blessings associated with the Lord's return? Well, the answer comes in chapter 4, verse 14. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We will look at all of these verses in much more detail in the ensuing weeks, but I just want to give an overview to the book and how it fits together. So don't let the present persecution shake you. First Thessalonians 3, 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So don't conflate or confuse the persecution that you are now experiencing with the wrath of God. God loves you. Paul is writing for Thessalonians to let them know what was contained in Timothy's report. Timothy had brought good news to Paul concerning the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3.6 But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Paul is comforted. He's encouraged. He says, I sent Timothy. Timothy's now come back. He's reported to me. He tells me of your love for the Lord. He tells you me of your love for me, that uh, you have not taken it personally, that uh, I have not come back, or that uh, I have uh, left because of the persecution, etc., etc. So there's a good relationship of the Thessalonians with God, and there's a good relationship of the Thessalonians with Paul. So the conclusion. Persecution is consistent with being a child of God and being loved by God. Uh, we need to understand that we don't suffer much persecution in the culture in which we live. Certainly there are many Christians 
around the globe that are experiencing a great deal of persecution tonight. But that's not our experience. But we can't assume that it will never be our experience. That there will never be persecution. In fact, it's abnormal. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You look at church history. The Word of God says, those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the norm. What we are experiencing is really abnormal. And there's no guarantee that that's going to continue. In fact, it would be quite amazing if that does continue. For again, it's not normative. So we need to prepare ourselves and we need to at least get our theology right so that when persecution and difficulty comes, we don't question God's sovereignty, we don't question his love for us, we don't question our salvation, and we don't look around like it says in Peter, something strange has happened to us. The strange thing is that we are really not suffering persecution now. So let us really be thankful for the period of peace and tranquility in which we live. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You know, I, I hear so many Christians that are negative about our country and negative about, about our freedoms. Most of the world knows nothing about the kinds of freedoms that we have here in the United States and the church in particular. No one is worried about going home tonight and the police knocking on the door because you were in church today. We have incredible freedoms. And I would submit to you that also carries a tremendous responsibility. When you think of people who are risking their lives in order to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, how ashamed we should be if we failed to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ because we might get embarrassed. Because somebody might say something unkind to us. Because we might offend somebody and they might accuse us of being a holy roller or having a judgmental attitude or thinking ourselves better than others. May we use the freedoms that we enjoy to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. D, God is able to keep us and cause us to stand in the midst of great difficulty. God will watch over us. That doesn't mean that necessarily our life will be spared, but it does mean that our faith will be spared. God will keep us in the faith. He will give us the grace that we need to stand firm 
But part of that will be that there will be created a more earnest prayer life and desire. One of the great blessings of persecution is the purifying effect that has upon the church. The word of God becomes more precious when you don't have the access to it that you do now. Once it's taken away, you realize what you've lost. Once you can't gather publicly because of persecution, all of a sudden you realize what you miss. And you can't sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. It drives us to the Lord. We recognize our need and he sustains us. So F, we learn that there's a great comfort and looking forward beyond this life in anticipation of the life to come. Again, uh, just looking at church history, just trying to get a sense of the larger church, the big C, Christendom as a whole. Christendom's joy and delight has always been in the hope of the resurrection and eternal life that one day we'll be in the presence of God. The American church is losing that hope. And rather than focusing on the life to come and being eternally with God and one another, the focus is on the here and now. And it's about how to be happier in the here and now, how to be wealthier, how to be more prosperous. How to have a marriage that brings you greater joy, greater delight. How to cultivate friends, how to influence people. How to make the most out of today and tomorrow. How to be a better salesman. It's all about the material things of this world. What the Thessalonians needed to hear were all the blessings and hopes of eternal life and being with the Lord Jesus. May God create within us that delight and that hunger to be with him. May we be able to look more and more on the things of heaven and less and less on the things of earth. May he teach us what are the true joys, the true happinesses, as we will find in the book of Thessalonians. Let's pray. Our Father, help us in this study. Let's speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, give us a greater love for you and for your word. Thank you for the many privileges and joys that we have. Lord, we, we thank you that we are at peace and we live in a time of unmeasured prosperity. And the church really knows no significant persecution in the United States. Lord, thank you for that. But 
Lord, may we not become indifferent because of it. But Lord, speak to our hearts and minds to direct ourselves to the things of great importance and to want to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.